0: Trying to drink less alcohol, but need some extra motivation. Maybe you've tried moderation, but you keep waking up disappointed and hungover. Are you curious about sober life? Or maybe you're like us, have been alcohol free for a while and are in it for the long haul. Well, you're in the right place. I'm Meg. And I'm Bella, and our Not Drinking Today podcast is an invaluable resource to keep you motivated and on track today and beyond. We are This Naked Mind certified coaches who live in Sydney and love our alcohol-free life. And last but not least, if you enjoy the content of our podcast, please rate, review, subscribe and share it. It really is integral to getting the podcast out to those that might need it. So grab a cuppa and let's get started. Hello and welcome. Today on the podcast, I'm speaking with Sarah Rusbatch. Sarah is a certified health and well-being coach, an accredited gray area drinking coach, a motivational speaker, and Sarah is now also an author. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. Sarah, can we start by you telling us how you've gotten to where you are today?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in the north of England where it was, you know, pretty common to start drinking at 13, 14, um, go fill fill up your your solar stream bottles with whatever you could find in your parents' drinks cabinet, this concoction of like Southern Comfort and Ginzano and martini and a bit of vodka. And then you'd top it up with some lemonade or some cola and you'd go down the local park, you'd drink this disgusting concoction. You Maybe you'd have a little snog with one of the local boys and then you might maybe you'd go home, you'd throw up somewhere and then you'd do it all again the following weekend. And that was kind of just the norm of like this this kind of indoctrination to teenage years and having a social life and doing all of those things and the more I share that story the more people go yeah me too me too we used to do that like I think it's quite common because I don't know about you Meg but I grew up in a house where you know alcohol was 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 quite present mum and dad drank I I wouldn't say more or less than any other parents they didn't have a problematic relationship with alcohol but it was certainly present and my my associations, my beliefs around alcohol, I can see kind of having done all this work on myself now, looking back, started at quite a young age, which were alcohol is what parents do to have fun. Alcohol is what makes my mum and dad laugh a lot. Alcohol is what you must have when you socialise and when you spend time with other grown-ups. So therefore, from a very young age, for me, it was just like, well, yeah, when, when I'm old enough to drink alcohol, now no, 14 is certainly not old enough to be drinking alcohol, but that was kind of what people were doing at my age. And that's what we all started doing. And so I think from a young age, it was not a matter of if, it was a matter of when. And in the social setting I was in, that meant it started fairly early. Um, I also kind of looking back have realised that I'd gone to five different schools by the time I was 13. I'd moved around a lot. I'd had this kind of association of Sarah the new girl, Sarah having to fit in, Sarah having to make new friends. And and that was quite exhausting. And what I realized when I drank alcohol was that very first time I can remember thinking, ah, oh, I fit in. I'm I'm one of the girls. I'd I'd moved from Scotland to England at this point at the age of 13, which is quite a difficult time to move. And from this quite, quite kind of like standard comprehensive co-ed school in Scotland where you didn't have a uniform, it was a bit rough and then I went to this really posh all-girls grammar school in Manchester where I had this really strong Scottish accent, I had this terrible perm, I was a bit overweight and spotty and there was all these girls that played hockey and lacrosse and they were all so glamorous and so sporty and I just didn't feel like I fitted in whatsoever and when I drank alcohol with those girls For me, that was when all the walls came down and that was when I felt like I'm one of the girls, I fit in now. Um, I I can see you nodding a lot. I don't know if that's something that you resonate with as well.
0: Totally, starting with the parents, like my parents weren't big drinkers. Like they didn't, um, my memory is that my dad would have a beer after work. To me it was, ah, that's how he relaxes. Mum might have had a wine. But when they had friends over, definitely there was alcohol. Same thing. They didn't drink more or less, I don't think, than anyone else. It was just the norm. And you don't really think about that growing up until you kind of look back and go, yeah, that was an influence because society tells us it's normal. And, and not only normal, you can't actually socialise without it. Yeah. So I totally relate. And I I only swapped, I swapped schools three times. But even now, Only recently I've realised that had an impact on me because I always felt like an outsider. So I absolutely do relate. And that's why my head's been nodding.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so, and and I think from that moment on, the associations 14-year-old Sarah made were when I drink alcohol, I can quickly make friends. When I drink alcohol, I'm quickly accepted into the group. And so alcohol became the conduit for me to make friends, meet new people in any new situation I was in, which was going to university, where, of course, it's it's a very big binge drinking um, culture, especially in the UK, mm-hmm. where you leave home at 18 And Freshers' Week is just about the first week just getting as pissed as you possibly can. You're meeting all these new people. So that was university. Then I moved straight to London after graduating and got a job in London. And my fourth interview, I got a job in recruitment. And the fourth stage of the interview process was going to the pub to do shots of tequila to see how well you could handle your booze. This was 1998. And this was kind of what the London was like. You know, this is what the culture was like in those days. You would never do that now, right? But, no. but that was, I can remember one girl having her fourth interview where instead of doing tequila, they were doing flaming sambukas. And the whole of her like upper lip caught fire mm. whilst doing these. And that was her interview mm. process. And I can <laughs> clear as day remember everyone sitting around the table the next day kind of going... Oh, I don't know if we should offer her the drink. She didn't seem, we should offer her the job. She didn't seem that impressed about the um, the the flaming Sambuca. I don't know if she's going to be enough fun for us. Oh,
0: wow. I, it, it's interesting, isn't it? I think they'd that. go to jail these days.
1: Oh, I know. <laughs> like HR would never approve that nowadays. Wow. But that was 1998. So yeah. Again, I found myself in a ridiculously fun, boozy Like work hard play hard environment it was like an extension of university where it was 300 graduates all working in this company where the only difference to uni was you had to be at your desk at half past eight you you worked until half past six so it was a 10 hour day you didn't get a lunch break and then there was always someone to go to the pub with that night and so it was a very very much a work hard play hard binge drinking culture but you know in your 20s I just like wore my ability to to drink and then get up and function the next day as a badge of honor. That was like, look at me. I'm amazing. I can drink the same as the boys. I'd always been so proud of my drinking ability. It was always something to kind of be like, yeah, yeah, I'm not a lightweight girl. I can drink, you know, match the boys drink for drinks. Um, and so that was kind of my the the way things were in London. Then I went traveling for a year, of course, traveling around the world, around Southeast Asia, all the full moon parties. I did the East Coast of Australia, from Cairns to Sydney, doing all the backpacking hostels. Again, just every night revolved around boozing. I remember being at the doctors with such a bad liver infection. Um, and And I was like, and I said to my friend, I remember emailing my friend in England and going, Yeah, the doctor said I haven't been drinking enough water because every time I'm thirsty, I keep having a soft drink um, instead of water. So I've just got to make sure I drink more water. At no point did I go, I need to drink less because I'm probably having 15 units a night. Like that didn't even occur to me. It was just I've got to drink more water and less Coca-Cola. And so like there was my um, my analogy for that. Um so, so drinking had been big. I'd been a heavy drinker, I'd been a consistently big drinker, I was Sarah the party girl, but it wasn't problematic. Like it didn't cause me looking back. The, you know, my memories are fond memories. They are they're memories of a girl who didn't really have true self-connection. I didn't really know myself that well. Alcohol, I think, keeps us disconnected from who we truly are at that soul level. But I was Sarah, the party girl. I had a great social life. I met my husband. We finally felt um pregnant after you know quite a long time of trying to get pregnant, which I do believe my partying lifestyle played a big part in and then after we had our son, my husband's from New Zealand, he said, "I don't want to bring up our son in this." environment I want us to move to the beach I want us to have that outdoor lifestyle it's time and we'd always said at some point we would probably go to Australia so in 2010 when my son was nine months old we made the decision to move to Perth and I didn't really anticipate how hard that was going to be in terms of leaving behind my family all my close I had a really core group of close girlfriends that were like like family to me Then there was also like I wasn't didn't have a job. I'd had this job in London that had been very successful. I'd worked for the same company for eight years. I was a director. They were like family to me. And all of a sudden I was on the other side of the world. I fell pregnant again with my daughter as soon as we got to Perth and then very quickly found myself with two under two with no friends, no family, no support. No sense of identity because I I wasn't working. My days were spent going to monkey music and baby rhyme time and pureeing carrots and changing nappies. And I was so lonely. I was so homesick. And I was really sad. And, And I didn't want to tell anyone because it was like, I'm living the dream. I've moved to Australia. Look, we live by the beach. I get to go to the beach every day. And I felt like I was being a bit disloyal to my husband if I shared that I wasn't so happy. And I felt like I... I should be happy because on paper, we were living this dream life, but inside, it wasn't what I wanted. And and so I drank because that was when I realized that's when my drinking changed from being something I did to socialize, to make friends, to have fun, to something that I did to soothe my pain. And and the problem with that is if you're not dealing with the root cause of the pain and all you're doing is drinking, then you're never going to deal with it, right? Right. Yeah. and so drinking then escalated for quite a few years from there and then finally 2017 i had a couple of incidents where the drinking had got really bad i'd gone to a party i'd fallen over i'd landed on my face i'd cut my lip open you know all of those those little moments those rock bot- those little rock bottoms that kind of just make you go, this isn't sustainable. So I I took a break from alcohol, but this was 2017. There weren't a huge number of resources available then. It wasn't like today, where you've got all the podcasts and the books and the sober community, you know, Facebook wasn't what it is now, you know, all of those things. And so I remember reading This Naked Mind and just going, oh, wow, like it really, really impacted me. And I did 100 days. And then I was like, oh, but I can't never drink again. That would just be weird because like I'm seven, a party girl. Now I'll be okay. I've done a hundred days. I clearly don't have a problem. Now I'll be a normal drinker. Now I'll be able to moderate and went back to drinking. And within a couple of weeks, I was back to the same levels as before. And two years then of just taking breaks, going back to drinking, taking breaks, going back to drinking, fighting so hard to, to moderate, thinking it was... I had to try harder. I was weak because I couldn't moderate like other people could. There was something wrong with me. I had to find more, more inner strength to be able to moderate, which I now know is absolute rubbish and, and your neural pathways, once they're created, moderation is very rarely possible. Um, until finally I realized there's no moderation for me. And then I'd done enough reading. I'd read Alcoholic Sprain. I'd, I'd done all the the extensive reading. And, and so finally, April 2019, I made the decision that that was it. And that was the, my last drink was the 27th of April, 2019. So coming up to five years sober now, and then I retrained as a health and wellness coach, retrained as a gray area drinking coach. And then since then, I've been working with thousands of women all over the world to support them on their journey to sobriety.
0: Amazing. I relate to so much of your story. It's not funny. Um, I traveled vice versa i went to england so going back then i i know exactly what the partying lifestyle was like exactly the same and i feel like like you i kind of drank for this unhappiness because i didn't i knew i was meant for more but i just didn't know what that meant and so like you said the pain drank to sort of push that down but even our time our timeline like 2017 i was 2018 when i decided to have a break I found Rebecca Weller at that point. I don't know if you've heard of you no. Know, yeah, yeah. I've met her. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, she's lovely. So I found her course, did a bit of AA, like you, thought I can moderate, spent the next two years sort of um getting worse than I was was before. And um I'm probably I'm three years behind you because congratulations on five years. I'm two, but it's that journey that you've got to go through, you know. So I totally relate to. Everything you've um, said, and it's you know good on you for getting to where you are. It is it is really hard being a mum as well. And you've come to Australia where mummy wine culture is huge. I don't know if you ended up joining a mothers group, but for me that was a really enabling kind of um, not from them, but it was again expected that we'd go and blow off steam by drinking because we're mums, you know. Did you have mum friends? after a while in Australia?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I was probably more of the ringleader because, you know, I was definitely the one that probably drank more than most. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I do think that grey area drinkers tend to navigate towards others that drink like they do. Because if someone, if I worked out very quickly that someone was a one glass of wine a night kind of girl, I was like, well, she's not my girl. So I would actually form friendships and make decisions about people based on whether they would drink at the same level as me. And and, you know, the friendship was many times the friendship had way more substance than just whether someone drank the same amount as me. But it definitely was a factor for me because I didn't want to spend time with people who would judge my drinking or wouldn't drink at the same level as me because that made me uncomfortable. So I wanted to find that. And then I would be the ringleader. Come on, let's go down the park. Let's take a bottle of wine. We would do play dates at the park where we would take champagne at 11 o'clock in the morning. Mm. I remember my um, going to like a first birthday party, which was a 10 a.m. first birthday party where everyone was given a glass of champagne as they walked in the door. Like alcohol and motherhood seemed to just go hand in hand. And then everywhere you looked in social media, in advertising everywhere was just telling us that that was the norm that was okay Mm -hmm. it was something that was to be expected there was nothing wrong with that and that's the issue I have is I don't judge anyone everyone wants to drink at 10 a.m at their kid's first birthday party go for it but let's start actually to, like pulling apart some of the facts about women and alcohol so that people can make informed decisions instead of simply having this constant messaging being thrown at them that you deserve it. You must drink because you're a mother now. This is your only way of relaxing
0: and getting a reward at the end of the day. Yeah, I totally agree. And like you said, I was the ringleader. My lovely friends, you know, exactly like you, I picked the people that drank more but I definitely kept that going it's very interesting I go out with them we're still really good friends and all of them have naturally slowed down drinking I couldn't do that but it's um you know you see all the memes online about mums and it's oh look I so agree that we need to get the word out that you know it's it doesn't have to be normal and a lot of people worry about uh stigma or losing friends I mean what's happened with your friendship circle now do you have the same friends or did you lose some friends? So I've got a lot of the same friends and some friendships,
1: I wouldn't say that we made any decision to go, let's not be friends anymore. But certainly some friendships, I see less of those people because our values perhaps are less aligned. We don't actually have as much in common as I thought when you take the alcohol away. But all that has done has allowed me the space of some people leaving has allowed space for new people to come into my life. Mm -hmm. And I've now got a lot of sober friends who actually want to do, you know, and how we know each other is through Kim, who's one of my great sober friends here in Perth and through meeting Kim, you know, Kim's always up for doing anything and it's like let's go do an ice bath let's go do a hike let's go do a 35k coast trek walk in in Margaret River like she's up for adventure and that's what i find with most sober women that i meet is we don't want a mediocre life anymore we want to go and do fun things we want to challenge ourselves we want to get okay with being uncomfortable with doing hard things because once you've removed alcohol from your life which is freaking hard in an alcohol centric society it makes you kind of feel invincible and it makes you go well yeah if i can do that i can do anything and and that's where my life has got way more interesting.
0: Yes, yes, I love that. And it's all about um, adventure. And I think you're right. So many people on this journey who have stopped drinking are just looking for amazing things to do, you know. And I love that. I wish I was in Perth. I'd do all those things you just mentioned with with you and Kim. Um, so Sarah, you've now written a book, which is amazing. I couldn't do that if I tried. So I totally have the utmost respect for you. Can you take us on a bit of that journey, how that came about? So I'm an avid reader. I'm
1: someone, you know, if you'd have asked me when I was a little girl, what do you want to be when you grow up? I would have said I want to be an author and I want to write books. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's been a lifelong dream of mine to have a book written. So it's amazing that this has happened. And I have read, you know, probably nearly 90% of the sober books out there, all of which have played a massive role in my journey to sobriety in terms of the books about how to get sober, the memoirs of, you know, Catherine Gray and Claire Pauly and and some Mm. of those incredible Mm -hmm. books. But what I realized was missing was there wasn't a book. There's lots of books about how to get sober, you know, how to get sober, what you do in those that first month, those first couple of months, but there weren't any books about how to stay sober, about what it actually takes to create a life you love so you don't want or need to drink. And in the coaching programs that I do with the women that I work with, I, I do alcohol-free programs of how to remove alcohol, but I go to stage two. Like I think there's three stages of sobriety, right? The first one is the let's get over the physical cravings for alcohol. Let's just stop that habit or whatever it is, the addiction, and and, and get through that maybe the first couple, two or three months. But then I feel like the second stage is, well, let's get to discover who we really are without alcohol. And I have a group coaching program called Rediscovering Me. And I could see that that was pivotal in women staying sober. So there were a lot of women who were doing my challenges, but they were going back to drinking. Whereas the women that did Rediscovering Me and that went in to do the deeper work, they weren't going back to drinking because I was giving them the tools, the resources, the strategies to get to know themselves, to peel back some more layers, to really develop that self-awareness to be able to get to know who they were without alcohol. And then I wanted to condense that into a book. And so I've written a book called Beyond Booze, How to Create a Life You Love Alcohol-Free. It's aimed at women. Um, The majority of, of, I would say, 99% of people I work with are middle-aged women, aged between 40 and 60, we now know the statistics are that alcohol use disorder in women has increased 80% in the last 30 years. And it's it's damaging and it's dangerous. And I, I so I, in the book, I talk about some of the reasons we need to address this. And there's a lot about the physical side, about how alcohol impacts women differently to men, about the impact of alcohol when we're going through perimenopause. And so there's a lot of information about that. But then the last five chapters are the What do we need to do to create a life we love? So I address the, one of the topics that comes up so much is what do I do if my partner still drinks? And there's a whole chapter in the book around navigating relationships. That was something I had to navigate with my husband. And and so there's a chapter on that. There's a chapter on socializing and friendships and how to navigate that stage um, and, and that process. There's a chapter on how, what do I do for fun? how do I actually start to discover what I do for fun now that I don't drink? The chapters on discovering your purpose and how to create a more fulfilling life. There's a chapter on managing stress because I find that most of the women I work with, one of the key reasons they're drinking is stress. So we need to start managing where that stress is coming from and developing a toolkit of, of other things outside of alcohol that help us to manage stress. So it's really like... And it's got a lot of my story peppered through the book as well. So it's part memoir, it's part coaching with tools and strategies and resources to support women to, to do that deeper work, to create a
0: life where they don't need alcohol as a crutch come five o'clock every night. That sounds amazing. I love that you're going into the next stage in the book because like you, I have pretty much probably listened to and read every lit book out there. So I'm really excited to... Uh, read yours it sounds amazing and they're just common things that people worry about like you just said you know having a partner drinking is incredibly hard I mean does your husband drink now is that how did you manage that
1: so the first three times that I did extensive breaks from alcohol he still drank and mm-hmm. it changed our relationship in many ways because he we have both been massive drinkers we met he was. We met because he was the tour guide I did on a on a bus trip from Perth to Broome. He was the Kiwi tour guide. Um, I was the English backpacker. My chat up line was, "Do you want to come and play my drinking game?" And so it was kind of like the, the writing was on the walls from day one as to what our you know our social life was going to be like. So we did drink a lot together. So when I stopped drinking that first time when I did that hundred days, I was like. Oh, we don't really talk to each other anymore. And when he goes and drinks after work, I avoid him because I don't want to be around him drinking. Whereas before, that was our moment of connection. He would come home from work, I would go and open a wine, he would open a beer, we'd sit outside in the garden, we'd maybe have a cheeky fag behind the washing line, we would catch up and connect, oh, how was your day? Whereas when he was coming home from work and going and having a beer, oh, I don't want to be around him drinking. I didn't mind him doing that, but I just didn't want to be near him in case it was a trigger for me. So what happened was we started to get further and further and further apart. And so finally, when we when I finally quit in 2019, he actually quit as well. And we then ended up in couples therapy because we were just, we, we didn't have a point of connection anymore. We were both so separate, going on this journey. And, you know, it's such a personal journey when you remove alcohol and then I went into therapy at the same time. I started peeling, really peeling back the layers of who I was and what had been at the heart of some of the traumas that I'd had in my life to create the version of me that I was today and what help I needed. So I wasn't getting triggered anymore. And when you do that, you have to almost just press pause. We had to press pause on our relationship because it was about me. I had to do the work on me before I was ready to do the work on us. And that meant that our relationship was a bit shit for a while. And and we were like two ships in the night where it was kind of like, who's picking up Scarlett from swimming? Who's taking William to rugby? That was kind of the extent of our conversation. Mm. And then when I was ready and when he was ready, it was kind of like, we're not in a great place and we probably need some help. And we went to couples therapy and, and it saved our marriage like it really did because she gave us tools of communication how to check in with each other how to ask the other person how are you doing what do you need right now are you are you feeling okay which we just hadn't been doing so yeah there's there's quite a lot in the book about that
0: that's amazing i love that and it's you know it is such a personal journey but it's um to support someone else on that when you're just learning about yourself is so tricky but you know that'll be so interesting to read because i know a lot of my clients um do have that issue of their partner still drinking. And I have split from my partner. But back when I did my, you know, a few months on and off here and there, he actually got on board with that. So that was great at the time. Uh, But I did notice that having just me work on everything um, wasn't going to be long term for him. So it's look, it's a messy journey, isn't it? And it sounds like um, you've come out the other side. And, and therefore, you know, you can help other people, which is amazing. And like I said, I can't wait to read this book. It sounds incredible. I'm excited for it to come out. And I feel like
1: that it is a point of difference to most of the sober books that are out there. It's got a different message um, and goes quite a lot deeper into that deeper work that we do on ourselves um, to, to be able to truly change our relationship with alcohol.
0: Yeah, no that's brilliant and it really I tell people, you know, there is work involved in this. You it would be great if we could just make a decision and never look at it again. But or ourselves again, but it it does involve the work. I really enjoy it doing, you know, working on myself. Um I know some people don't, but my my theory sort of is, well, you can have the discomfort of not changing and going on how you were, which for me was leading to some pretty dangerous I I I dare not think about where I was headed or the discomfort of making the change. And it can be uncomfortable feeling those feelings that we've buried for so long. But um, I just know that the books helped me so much. So for anyone that sort of wants to just get started somehow, I say dig into the quit lit. And like you said back then, even though it wasn't that long ago, there wasn't heaps out there. Nah. I didn't. I didn't listen to podcasts in 2018. Um, definitely on Audible, I had the books, and then I did discover Annie Grace a bit further along. And like I said, Rebecca Weller was really awesome. But there's so much more now. So I'd encourage everyone to check out your book, especially people that have yeah, you know, given up and and are, are just, just stuck in that, not knowing where to go next. Because a massive part for me has been finding my passion and purpose, and I yeah. here for you too.
1: And that's the thing, I think, Meg, is that everyone thinks that, 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 that I have an issue with social media sometimes with the portrayal of sobriety being all you have to do is remove alcohol and then your life will be amazing. And that's simply not true. Removing alcohol is 10%. 90% of the work is actually in going on this deeper journey of self discovery. I listened to this amazing podcast at the weekend where the guy was saying, most people will only ever have an average life because you can't have more than an average life if you're not prepared to go into discomfort, because it's when you go into discomfort that you grow and you change and you evolve and you actually go on to create amazing things. And if you actually want to have an amazing life, I do believe that an incredible, amazing, fulfilling, purposeful life comes from being okay with being uncomfortable. And most people just aren't. But that I think that Getting sober is the first step to that because you have to sit with the discomfort of cravings and choose not to drink. And so it's your first lesson in choosing discomfort for the longer term gain. And when we start to do that, we're starting to teach ourselves, I can do this. My 14 year old son asked me a really interesting question the other day. He said to me, Mum, what's the best feeling in the world? (laughs) Don't you love the questions that kids ask? Yes. And I sat there in the car and I thought about it and I said, I actually believe the best thing in the world is when you do something you don't want to do, but you get that feeling of achievement and accomplishment afterwards. And most people want the easy option. So they never get the best feeling in the world because they don't go into the discomfort that allows for the incredible feeling afterwards. And I said to him, never be afraid of discomfort. You know, never be afraid of of what the challenge will be because it's in the challenge that we grow the most as humans. And, you know, and on that note, that's another part of my sober journey is being the discovering of me has allowed me to parent my kids and have conversations with my kids that are so very, very different to what drinking Sarah's conversations would have been like as a mum,
0: yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? And that's just beautiful i love I love what your best feeling in the world was, and I absolutely agree um I have never lived so much out of my comfort zone that I have than I have now, but it's got me to where I am and I'm so so happy at fifty. I'm fifty now to finally have got the pieces of the puzzle coming together on what my purpose and passion is. And I was scared of living an average life, or the way I was going. It was pretty below average, to be honest. But and it's not once you get um, out of that comfort zone. You like you said, the the payoff is so big, and it's so worth it. You want to just keep doing more. Yeah. So you yeah. know, and I love that I can pass that on to my kids too. And um, <clears throat> because, like you said, it's when you do that. I mean that that builds a confidence in you, um, some pride. It's such a it, it's a great tool as well. Apart from that, you just discover things about yourself and incredible things in your life that you we might never have tried had we not gone on this path. So yeah, exactly, exactly. I totally agree with that, but um. So Sarah, where can our listeners find you? I will put everything in the show notes, uh, but just let us know. So I'm quite active
1: on Instagram at Sarah Rusbatch. My website is sarahrusbatch.com. My book comes out on the 30th of January and it's available from all booksellers, Amazon, Booktopia, Dimmicks. Um, and I will be in Sydney, um, A book launch in February. I'm not sure when this podcast will go live, um, but that's just in a couple of weeks from now. So yeah, but the best way is follow me on Instagram. I have a free Facebook community which has over 15,000 women in it from all over the world called the Women's Wellbeing Collective, where I share lots of tools and tips and strategies, and it's a great supportive community. So come find me wherever you hang out the most.
0: That's amazing. So this will go on air before your book launch. So can people go to that are there tickets or available yep yeah.
1: yeah. so go to my website com and you will see that it's um a event in sydney at the alcohol-free um bar um up in brookvale sea drift distillery so that will be an awesome it's a women's only event um and it will be just all sober
0: and sober curious women coming together to celebrate an alcohol-free lifestyle Amazing. And I will see you there. And it's a great location. I'm really excited. And I'm so grateful for you coming on today, Sarah. Thank you so much for sharing your journey with us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. And you can pre-order the book um, and have it delivered, or you can purchase it for um, immediate um, release on the 30th of January.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Meg.
0: If you don't already know, in addition to our podcasting work, we are each sobriety coaches with our own separate businesses, helping people to drink less. If you or a loved one want to take a break from alcohol, we invite you to have a look at our individual websites. Meg's is glassfulfilled.com.au and Bella's is isabellaferguson.com.au So take the next step that feels right for you.